want to thank Steve for reading that responsive reading for us this morning. That's a reminder that this Sunday we're celebrating Palm Sunday. So that means we're a week away from Easter, and we want to invite each and every one of you, you'll see that bulletin insert, to come for our Good Friday service here at the church. It'll be at 10.30, the same time as our regular worship service on Sunday. It will be on Friday here at the church. We'll look forward to, to celebrating together as we reflect on that um, ultimate sacrifice that Christ paid for the purchase of our salvation. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I'd invite you to turn once again to John's Gospel account, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 16. John chapter 16. Notice verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. These things. What things? The things Jesus had just said in verses 18 to 27 of John chapter 15. And we studied these a couple of weeks ago. I should take a minute and just uh, thank Wayne Foster, one of the elders here at the Rock Community Church, for preaching last week for us. Um, I did hear a, a lot of positive feedback about his singing pastoral prayer, and um, although it was very inspiring to hear all that, I was not in any way tempted to sing the pastoral prayer this morning, and you can be thankful for that. But I do want to thank Wayne for his faithful partnership and his example among us. And I just wondered, would you mind showing our appreciation to Wayne this morning? He just... I'm not sure whether you're aware, but he just celebrated another birthday this past week. Wayne, we, we love you, and we're glad you're amongst us. We just appreciate you so much. In verses 18 to 27 of John chapter 15, Jesus was continuing to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure. Jesus, in these verses, disclosed what his disciples' relationship with the world will look like following his departure. And it was not a pretty picture. You'll remember the world, in this context, means that that system that is opposed to Jesus Christ, everything that God represents, including all those who do not yet believe or who have not trusted Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That world, Jesus informed his disciples, will hate you. In fact, look at verse 18 of John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you sorry, verse 18, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Wow. Do you remember how we summarized the, kind of the, the summary statement for these verses two weeks ago? Remember how we summarized? Friends of Jesus are fated to be hated. Back to verse 1 of John chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you so that, that's a purpose statement, so that you may be kept from stumbling. That last phrase in the New Living Translation reads, so that you won't abandon your faith. And in the New International Version, so that you will not fall away. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation, to prepare you for the rough times ahead. So the implication? It's still possible. It was possible for these 11 men, Jesus' closest ministry companions, having spent two and a half years with him in close proximity, to stumble, 
to abandon their faith, to fall away. But Jesus, as God dressed in human flesh, took the initiative just hours prior to his arrest, trial, torture, and death by crucifixion, here we find him stumble-proofing his disciples' faith. Think about that. God takes initiatives to stumble-proof our faith. This morning, as we study the first 11 verses of John chapter 16, we're going to discover Jesus taking a couple of initiatives to stumble-proof his disciples' faith. And God stumble-proofs faith, genuine faith. He does not want us to abandon our faith, to fall away, or to go AWOL because of the way the world is treating us or because of the, the things that are happening in our life. And that's my hope and prayer for us this morning. That we will be encouraged. Regardless of what is happening to you, in you, or around you, you will be encouraged, knowing that our Father who is in heaven takes the initiative to stumble-proof our faith. Stand with me if you're able and... Let's read these first 11 verses of John chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you, were, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our Father who is in heaven... Thank you for this supernaturally inspired and preserved written revelation. We acknowledge that it is authoritative. Enable us to understand it and then to obey it by your power and for your glory. It is also sufficient, promising to provide us with everything that we need to live a God-honoring life. Help us to avoid looking elsewhere. Use these very words, first spoken by Jesus while addressing his 11 remaining disciples on the night that he was betrayed, use them to give us added confidence in our faith. Indeed, may we be enabled to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Thank you for the initiatives that you have taken to make this possible. And now may the words of my mouth and be clear and concise explanations of your word. May the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, 
Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, while Cynthia and I were living in Burlington, Ontario, we had the opportunity to purchase what has turned out to be one of the best used cars we've ever owned. It is now 12 years old, has over 310,000 kilometers, and yet, to this day, I still hear comments, even from mechanics, car experts, that they're surprised at how little rust there is on that car. And you know, while we lived in Burlington, every September or October, we would make our way to crown rust proofing to be oiled. The website lists the benefits of crown application. Safer, better looking vehicle, longer vehicle life, decreased repair costs, higher resale value. There's no question in Cynthia and my minds, Crown has preserved our beloved BMW. And what Crown has done for our BMW, God wants to do for your faith and for my faith. Crown rust proofs vehicles. God takes initiatives to stumble-proof our faith. Jesus took the initiative to stumble-proof his disciples' faith. And Jesus stumble-proofed his disciples' faith by, first of all, forewarning them. And that forewarning has attached to it or consists of four very specific explanations. What the world will do to you, why they will do it, how to respond, and why I'm telling you now. The first explanation is found in verse 2. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Jesus explained what they will do to you, or what they will do to his disciples, what the world, the system that stands opposed to God, including all those who do not believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, what they will do to his disciples. And did you catch the progression? It began back in John chapter 15. The world hates you. In verses 18 and 19, we read those. Verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And let's face it, certainly they persecuted Jesus. In fact, we know the rest of the story. And the persecution is going to be ratcheted up really quickly following this in the next few chapters. As we come to chapter 16, verse 2, what they will do to them becomes increasingly specific. And I would suggest increasingly concerning for those 11 disciples. Notice they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. And folks, you need to understand that's not... It's a whole lot different than being put out of the Rock Community Church. The language in the NIV and New Living Translation, that little phrase is translated put out of. And if we're put out of the Rock Community Church, well, we'll just wander over to Oxford Baptist or maybe down the street to, to Calvary Church. No big deal, really. In fact, some don't even need to be put out before they start wandering off. They don't like the music or the preacher. Find a more exciting alternative. They offer more services for me and my family. Whatever. 
Woodstock offers a plethora of alternatives. Christians wander from church to church. What is even more amazing to me is some choose to stay at home. But you need to understand that for the first century Jew to be unsynagogued, well, it just contained life altering repercussions. Remember the parents of that man born blind back in John chapter 9? Jesus had given their son new eyes. And the Pharisees, they were upset because it took place in the temple and on the Sabbath. And so they brought an investigation together. They were the, the Jewish watchdogs. God's, actually, they were self-appointed watchdogs. Remember how the parents responded to their interrogation? Or read their response. Listen. We know that, our, that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Can you hear them distancing themselves from their son? John provides an explanation for the response in the very next verse. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confesses him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So these parents were prepared to sacrifice their relationship with their own son. Their son who was seeing for the very first time in his entire life. Rather than be unsynagogued. To be unsynagogued was a big deal. In fact, one commentator writes the following. If you were in first century Judaism and you were thrown out of the synagogue, you were thrown out of the nation. There was no separation between the secular and sacred. You were thrown out of your family. You lost your job. You lost your friends. You were a spiritual leper. You would be reduced in many cases to a beggar. To be thrown out of the synagogue, to be unsynagogued, would be literally to be eliminated from the hopes and the prerogatives of being Jewish. You are a rebel who is worse than a pagan Gentile. You would not be given the privilege of an honorable burial. You were a religious outlaw. So the progression is hated, persecuted, unsynagogued, and executed. Look at the last part of verse 2. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. In the past 2,000 years has proven that to be exactly true. First, it was the Jews. Then it was the Romans under emperors like Nero. Then it was the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Today, we have Islam. All committed to killing Christians to whom they consider to be infidels, all in the name of serving God. Listen to the Apostle Paul's confession as he defends himself before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I punished them in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them 
that I even chased them down in foreign cities. This, of course, was prior to his conversion while on the road to Damascus when he was a religious zealot of Judaism. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And we would add, all in service to God. Jesus' first explanation clarified what the world, that system that opposes God, will do to them. And you may want to underline the word in your Bible, they will. It was a bold prediction. And it was not a pretty picture. Look at verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Jesus explains why they will do these things to you. And it's real simple. They don't know God. The only people who believe in God, who believe in Jesus, are people who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, you do not believe in the one true God, and you are not a Christian. You are of your, of your father, the devil, according to John chapter 8, verse 44. And as children of this world, you will consciously and unconsciously oppose all that God represents. Until we come to the point in our lives when we acknowledge that we are sinners who are incapable of living lives that please God, that we repent of our sin, and that we start trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Until we come to that point, we will naturally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look it up. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father or me. And folks, ignorance is not an excuse. It's an explanation, but it's not an excuse. And the most, most vehement opponents of Christianity are often religious people who don't know God. I was always taught that the most dangerous people in the world are those with nothing to lose. But perhaps there are a group that's even more dangerous, especially for Christians. It's these kinds of religious zealots who are prepared to sacrifice everything in opposition to Christianity, even their own lives, in service to their God. But that's not the God of the Bible. Look at verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes, you, re you may remember what I told you of them. Thirdly, how you are to respond. At an intersection, a green light turns yellow. At the airport terminal, the boarding call comes over the intercom. At a railroad crossing, the red lights begin to flash. At an NHL hockey game, the last minute of play is announced. On an Air Canada flight from Dallas to Toronto, we were asked to do up our seatbelts and prepare for landing. A voice of one call, calling in the wilderness was heard declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. 
And in John chapter 15 and 16, Jesus told his disciples that they would be hated, persecuted, unsynagogued, and even executed. Jesus was warning them, preparing them for their future. He didn't want them to be caught by surprise or blindsided. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John chapter 15, verse 25. It was their inescapable destiny. And when it happened, Jesus wanted them to remember. Remember that he had forewarned them. Why? Well, perhaps John chapter 13, verse 19 provides an answer. You may want to turn there. It's one page back. Verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Certainly when the disciples found themselves in these threatening circumstances, the ones that he had predicted, when they found themselves being hated, persecuted, unsynagogued, and yes, even executed, it would provide further proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. It would validate his credibility. But there is a saying in Latin, we might even call it a proverb. It's translated into English and it goes like this, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Have you ever heard of that before? Anybody? Somebody? I was going to say a couple. I was going to say maybe I dreamt it. But what it, what it means is that advance warning provides an advantage. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And this is the first of two advantages that Jesus provided his disciples by way of stumble-proofing their faith. They would not be blindsided. They would not be caught by surprise. And that is an advantage. Look again at verse 4. Jesus explains why I am telling you now. The end of the verse. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Up to this point, he was the primary target. His presence had shielded his disciples for the last two and a half years. They were not, being, they were not the recipients of the world's hatred. They were not being persecuted or hated. They didn't have any fear of being expelled from the synagogue or being executed. Jesus' opposition had been primarily preoccupied with him and how they could end his ministry. Get rid of Jesus, and his followers would scatter to the four winds. John chapter 5, already we're reading the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. In John chapter 7, he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In John chapter 11, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. It's interesting to note that there is no record in any of the gospel accounts, none, that these disciples faced any kind of these kinds of threatening circumstances. But according to Jesus, all that was about to change. Once he was eliminated and the movement continued to gain momentum, they would become the primary targets of Jesus' former opposition. The eleven would now become the targets of the world's hostility. They needed to be prepared, to be forewarned. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. An advance warning would provide them with an advantage, an advantage that would help to stumble-proof their faith. God takes initiatives to stumble-proof our faith. Jesus stumble-proofed his disciples' faith by forewarning them and also by promising an ally. 
But notice the ironic insertion in verses 5 and 6. It almost is as, it's almost as if these two verses don't fit. Look it. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, you are said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. I think these verses are used to heighten the significance of Jesus' initiative, the initiative he was taking here. Those of you who are attentive students of, and careful readers of John's gospel may want to put up your hand in, in opposition at this point. You have an objection to what is Jesus is saying here. Wait a minute. What about Peter and Thomas's questions back in John chapter 13 and verse 14? In John chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? In John chapter 14, verse 5, you'll remember that it was Thomas who said to him, Lord, we, don't know not, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Clearly, Jesus did not regard their questions as being interested in his life. They were self-serving questions. Jesus understood them as superficial protests about him. But his departure, how his departure was going to impact their lives. Me and my family. What about the kingdom that we were anticipating? Who's going to sit on your right and left hands? Who would be considered to be the greatest in your kingdom? All those kinds of things. And remember, Jesus knew their hearts. In John chapter 2, we were already told, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to the crowds, for he knew all men, for he himself knew what was in men. It's ironic that on the very night that Jesus would be betrayed, denied, and then deserted by his ministry companions, those men who had spent two and a half years in close proximity with. In fact, he counted them as his intimate friends. John chapter 15, verse 15. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And yet, according to Jesus, not one of them expressed concern for him. I think that's a sad commentary. But Jesus, the one who came to serve and not be served, and to give his life a ransom for many, is found taking the initiative to stumble-proof the faith of these preoccupied disciples, Disciples who were preoccupied with how his departure was going to impact them. One cold winter's day, a crowd of people were found outside the, the shop window of a pet store, watching a litter of puppies snuggling up with each other. One woman laughed and said, what a delightful picture of brotherhood. Look at how those puppies are keeping each other warm. To which a man interrupted her and said, No, ma'am, they're not keeping each other warm. They're keeping themselves warm. And I think that's what John is saying here. He's offering a similar clarification. The irony is as profound and striking as that of a rabbi who would take off his outer garments and wash the feet of his disciples. Look at verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let me encourage you to circle or highlight or underline that word advantage. This is the second advantage of Jesus' initiative. The first was a forewarning. 
The second is a provider of a helper that will be sent by Jesus following his departure. Jesus was referring, of course, to the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that he spoke about back in John chapter 14. Let's turn there. Look at verse 16 of John chapter 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You'll remember we talked about that. The Holy Spirit was with them in Christ. They were with Christ and the Holy Spirit was in Christ. But in the future, the Holy Spirit was going to be in them. Tremendous advantage. Look at verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus promised that following his departure, the Holy Spirit would prove to be a tremendous advantage. I realize that some people would say, wow, it would have been so cool to live and be one of the disciples and ministering alongside of him. This passage of scripture suggests just the opposite. It's a tremendous advantage to live on this side of the cross, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and have the Holy Spirit indwell us. That's where we want to be. The word translated helper could just as easily been translated and, and is in fact translated in other passages. Same word, comforter, counselor, advocate, intercessor, strengthener. It's the word parakaleo, which literally means to come along, to call alongside. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 24 reads, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This was Jesus' endorsement here in John chapter 16 of the Holy Spirit's friendship. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother and will always work for your benefit in your best interest. The NIV and the New Living Translation translates it for your good. The message would say, it is better for you. But interestingly, in verses 8 and 11, 8 through 11, Jesus points in an entirely different direction. Look at these verses again in John chapter 16. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit's relationship to the world will work to our advantage, to the disciples' advantage. How so? The Spirit's coming would result in a heightened level of conviction among unbelievers concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Greek word translated convict is actually used 18 times in the New Testament. And every case that it's used, it is used to... It is used in reference to showing believers their sin so that they will have an opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness. Don't worry, we're not going to look at all 18 verses, but I would like us to look at a sampling. Look at, John uses it again, or has used it, in John chapter 3, verse 20. Listen as I read. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Be exposed, same word. John chapter 8, verse 46. 
Jesus is speaking now and he's speaking to, to his accusers when he says, which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. Same word. Rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. One more. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. And this is that passage that informs us of our responsibility to exercise church discipline. It reads, verse 15, If your brother's sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won a brother. Show him his fault. That's the kind of work that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. He exposes, convicts, reproves, and shows the world their sin. One commentator writes, the world's deepest misery and lostness do not consist in its moral imperfection, but in its estrangement from God and its refusal to allow itself to be called out of that condition by the one whom God has sent for that very purpose. Listen, folks. As genuine followers of Jesus Christ, we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And it is our mandate to let, the light, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And that is the best we can do. Celebrate, demonstrate, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and pleading with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. And sometimes... Sometimes the Holy Spirit will turn the lights on and they will see and understand their sinfulness, repent of their sin, and begin trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And all heaven rejoices. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. As we do our part, Jesus promises that we have an ally, one who comes alongside and convicts the world of sin and of, and of righteousness so that they understand true righteousness rather than trying to impress others or, or maybe God or somehow win his approval through religious performances. Hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 51. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You, don't, you do not want a burnt offering. All religious performances. The sacrifices you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah warned the people of his day. When we display our righteous deeds... They are nothing but filthy rags. You and I will never be able to convince them of their unrighteousness. They will excuse, tolerate, justify, deny, deny, deny. But when the Holy Spirit turns the light on, well, repentance becomes the only alternative of somehow gaining peace with God. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You see, each and every one of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. First and foremost, what we did with Jesus Christ. The ruler of this world, in other words, Satan, the devil, stands as exhibit A 
He has been judged. And the greatest evidence of that is when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. Jesus' resurrection demands a response. You can try to ignore it, you can deny it, or you can believe it. But if you believe it, you'll want to repent and accept the forgiveness that he has made possible so that you can stand before God when he asks, why should I let you into my heaven? You will be able to say, because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring you to God. Another translation says, so that he might bring you safely home to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. God takes the initiative to stumble-proof our faith. And Jesus' initiatives to stumble-proof his disciples' faith delivered two advantages. One, a forewarning. They would not be caught by surprise, not blindsided. Two, an ally, the Holy Spirit, who is active even today. Folks, God is for us. In this passage, we have Jesus, God dressed in human flesh, about to enter an unimaginable period of suffering that would eventually result in his death. His 11 ministry companions are preoccupied with, with how that is going to impact their lives. Jesus brings them to an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the pretense that they would celebrate a Passover meal together. Isolated, away from the crowds, he begins to prepare them for his imminent departure just hours away. It's Thursday night. He begins by presenting an unbelievable expression of love. He washes their feet. Then he addresses their troubled hearts in John chapter 14. In John chapter 15, he, he addresses each of their relationships with himself, with one another, and then with the world. Today, we've seen how he takes initiatives to keep them from stumbling in a hostile world in a world that would hate them, persecute them, unsynagogue them, and even put them to death in the name of serving God. What I find absolutely astounding as I study this passage of scripture is how God functions in his relationship with his people. Jesus came as the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Or as the New Living Translation translates Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. This is God, our God, in action. The Apostle Paul offers this endorsement. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 32, we read, we read these words. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these 
whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Brothers and sisters, the same God who, while dressed in human flesh, took the initiatives to stumble-proof his disciples' faith, will take the initiatives to stumble-proof your faith and my faith. And that, my friends, is the message of Easter. That's what Easter is all about. Celebrate Easter. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. By his power and for his glory, because God takes the initiatives to stumble-proof our faith. And all God's people said, Amen. And again, say it like you mean it. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeff, come and lead us in some singing, please. <laughs>